Welcome to Design Your Life, the podcast where we explore the central role design plays in our everyday lives and how, if harnessed correctly, has the power to positively transform the way that we live, design better businesses and sustainable solutions for the planet. We speak to creative entrepreneurs around the world about how they inspire their ideas to life and how they make it all work and the role design plays in their lives. I'm your host, founder of Frost Collective and author of Design Your Life, Vince Frost. At Frost Collective, we are dedicated to designing a better world. Our specialist teams work across branding, strategy, place visioning and wayfinding, solving problems with empathy and creativity to design experiences that benefit people, business and the planet. And as a proud certified B Corp, we meet the highest environmental and social standards by balancing profit with our purpose to design a better world. To find out more, head to frostcollective.com.au. Welcome to today's episode of Design Your Life. Today I catch up with Anton Monster, the film music producer and now head of music for Amazon Original Movies. Anton has worked with director Baz Luhrmann on a number of box office films, curating and assembling the soundtracks for Romeo and Juliet, The Great Gatsby, Moulin Rouge, and the latest hit, Elvis. Tune in as we chat about the influence music has had on his life, the power that it has to influence your emotions, and the integral role it plays in storytelling. Hey, Anton, welcome to Design Your Life. How are you doing? Very well, Vince. Thank you. How about yourself? Yeah, really good. Thank you. I'm sitting here in Sydney, in our studio in Sydney. Whereabouts are you? I'm in Los Angeles. Uh, it's the day after Halloween here, which uh, is a uh, huge celebration in our town um, for for kids and for teenagers, although they're doing slightly different things uh, out there in the dark. <laughs> and it's inc- become incredibly creative. I noticed that here in Sydney too. People, the, the People's costumes are gone to like incredible lengths to uh, scare the crap out of everybody, but a, a real cool creative expression. It's a great creative expression. I, I approach it with some skepticism. I'm, I'm Australian. I grew up in Australia thinking Halloween was a kind of, um, it, it was just not culturally as, as sort of immediate as it is when you come and live in the States and you go up to, it's the kickoff to the holiday season. And um, people put a lot of efforts into their their costumes, and we had some trick or treaters come to our door last night. There are um, a bunch of art students from the high school, and uh, and their installation was to come as the painting of Edvard Munch's The Scream. But they had somebody <laughs> who who knelt down in in front and did the scream face, and then somebody who held the backdrop behind them. And it was uh, it was beautiful, and I, so yes, to the to the point of creativity, uh, I I had to award them. They won Halloween twenty twenty two in my book. <laughs> well, it's funny. It's it's a good segue to how we met because we met in a wonderful little street in Bondi Junction called Mill Hill Road. Um, I know I was I moved into that to that street and on a quiet day, and I I soon realized after a couple of days that the, it was a family street and. You lived on that street with your kids, and and Halloween was massive on that street. The whole area seemed to come to our road uh, and do trick or treating, which is really really cool. Yeah, it, uh, that's right. And it's fu- it's funny. Sometimes you don't realize uh, 
until after you leave a place how special it was and we certainly we feel that way about mill hill road and and about the you know all the all the relationships and friendships that came out of of living in that street full of interesting people yeah yeah real mi- mixture of people uh which is really really cool how did you get into into films because i I'd, I'd obviously heard that you had worked with uh baz Luhrmann, uh the director legendary australian director on five kind of seriously influential films. Um, how, how did how did your career begin? Because I, I I actually don't even know the story, so this would be interesting to hear. Uh, I'll try and tell it succinctly because this is one <laughs> I, I I can really string it out for a, for an entire dinner party conversation if you need me to. But um, look, I I had I I did a bachelor of arts. Uh, and I did an honours year in narrative theory, and and I was kicking around at the end of my degree. Not I didn't have a lot of direction, um, or really know what I wanted to do. I did. I harboured a bit of a private dream that one day I might work in the movies, but I I didn't know where I would be useful to do that. Uh, and Nikki, my wife, who at the time was my girlfriend. Um, she she was in her fourth year of a design degree and had an internship uh, with Baz Luhrmann and Catherine Martin, mm-hmm. and they were restaging an opera and just starting the very first moments of of uh, research and preparation into what would become the film of William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, and uh, I I'm just the lucky one like I was the boyfriend who was kicking around with time on his hands and who could come in and do handy at first handyman jobs i was painting walls and pulling up carpet and then when i learned that baz and his co-writer craig pierce were doing an adaptation of romeo and juliet for the screen i realized i there was an opening there for me because um i i'd studied the play many times i was going to do a master's degree in Elizabethan stage convention. I was, this was my world and I wow. sort of made it, I guess I advertised myself internally while painting the wall, kept kind of trying to listen in and, and, and find conversational ways to make myself useful to the writers. And, um, Baz and Craig just at one point said, Hey, you should really put down that paintbrush and, um, pick up this folder of stuff and go to the library. This is our research folder and we don't have time for it. Um, mm. So that was my first entree. And then uh, shortly after, Leonardo came down to Australia for a for a workshop to work on, because uh, acting in Elizabethan is not easy, and particularly for a, a young man from Los Angeles. He mm. had to know that he could perform the words uh, that Shakespeare wrote in the way that they were written and designed and and that was something that um brought him to australia and and because we're quite close in age uh uh, i became leo's minder while he was uh, i shouldn't say minder i was was his (laughs) i was his assistant while he was in while he was in australia but it was a fantastic job they gave me a a large uh, the producers gave me a large envelope of cash the keys to a rental car and uh, and a cell phone, which or a mobile phone, which in, in those days uh, I certainly did not have access to. So uh, wow. that helped to cement the the path that we were on. And then Nikki and I were swept off into the world of of that production. Wow, that incredible! I mean, and and then I mean, obviously, 
you've done many films since, and you've been working together for a, a long time. Uh, obviously, you got a new role as uh, head of music at Amazon Original Films, which is really yep. exciting. We'll talk about that in a minute. But just talk more about how how that role with Baz evolved. Well, I think on on Romeo and Juliet, it was it was a small production. Um, I mean, people's memory of that film is that it's kind of it's it's that it was a big Hollywood film, which I suppose. Baz coming off the back of Strictly Ballroom was was now making a film with about four four or five times the budget of Strictly Ballroom, but it, but by Hollywood standards, this was a tiny film, and so uh, we were a small team, and we all wore lots of hats, and that was cool because mm. uh, I was Baz's assistant on the film, I was uh, helping out with some of the the, the typing and and sort of script management stuff. And then this other sideline opened up for me, which was to be involved in the music because we didn't have the budget for a music supervisor, but we had a great music team on that film uh, and we had a partnership with a, with a record label and we all, we were all true believers in, in the film and, and music became kind of my thing. And Baz was very and has always been very... Um, generous with me in terms of opening up opportunities and and saying to me if you think you you want to do this you can you know i'll help you you can you can do it but you got to do it on your own and so i guess romeo and juliet for me was sort of was a a, a period of learning and and training and understanding what it was to be a music supervisor even though that's i didn't fulfill that role but by the time moulin rouge came around uh even though I was quite young, uh, Baz uh, hired me on onto Moulin Rouge as the music supervisor, and um, and we were off to the races. And that's that's been my uh, that's been my career ever since. Um, is helping to tell music, uh, sorry, helping to tell story through music. So, how did you learn how to do that? Because that is that just through through your experience with Romeo and Juliet. Well, I think look, I, I think you you have to. You have to love. You have to love what you're working with. Like I, I love music. I love movies, and I, I particularly love it when filmmakers um, integrate music in the storytelling in in ways that help. Um, they they help to tell the story by guiding your emotional response. Even at times when sometimes you can't even hear the music, or you're not you don't perceive the music. But the music's there, and so often if I like a film and I see it a second time, I'm usually really surprised that I go, oh, I didn't realise there was this much music in the film because mm -hmm. the first time around, it was, the music was holding my hand and guiding me through the, the labyrinth of, of the story. Yeah. Well, I guess the, the latest film, the massive smash hit Elvis, is all about, I mean, music plays a major part in that, and uh, listening to the album of the film i love that vegas um duja cat is that how you say it duja duja cat Do, doja cat oh okay Do, Do, doja, doja cat doja oh, what is it doja duja doja 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 cat uh hound dog right that is Do, just yeah or it's vegas but it, it my god that for me that's mega that song was that commissioned specifically for the film it was. Uh, it, it was commissioned 
for the film. Uh, and we, we approached Doja Cat and met with Doja Cat's music producer and, and talked about the idea of taking, uh, taking our version of Hound Dog that we'd recorded for the film, uh, which is, I guess it's a representation of Big Mama Thornton's Hound Dog. Um, mm. we, we said, why don't you take this and use it just as an inspiration for a new song? And if you want to sample uh, the Hound Dog, uh, that would be great too. But like, at the same time, we wanted Doja Cat to translate the underlying sentiment of Hound Dog and translate the the meaning of that song, which is, you know, it's an old song, and bring it into the the world of the contemporary audience who would be seeing the film. And mm. we use it on screen in the same way. We use it as a sort of, as a, as a way to tie two worlds together. It's the world of the audience in 2022, and it's the world of Elvis walking Beale Street in 1953 or 54. And getting those two things to marry, that's one of the great things Baz does with yeah. music. He, yeah. he doesn't care whether music's anachronistic in its use. We did it in Gatsby, we did it in Moulin Rouge, we do it in Romeo and Juliet. Music uh, can can be an invisible bridge between different time periods, and and it's exciting when you give yourself the license to do that because um, the kind of the purest in me and the purest <laughs> in the film audience out there is not expecting that, uh, and they're oh. not expecting to have a hip hop beat invade the world of of Elvis Presley. Yeah, I guess it's almost like you don't expect somebody else to be Elvis either, do you? Like you, you just can't imagine another actor playing that role. That's, that's exactly right. It's, I, I mean, I, th I think the, the great achievement of that film uh, really is, is Austin Butler's performance. Uh, he's, he becomes Elvis Presley for the audience in the first couple of minutes of that film. And there's sort of no turning back. And it's, that's a, that's a massive, undertaking for an actor and it's incredible it's it's i watched it twice now i don't often watch films twice but i actually enjoyed it even more so the second time um and the music throughout that that film is just spectacular i mean it really is i mean how did you guys marry that all together like that i mean was it um what came first was it the visuals that came first or the music or how, how does it how does it work I guess you'd say that Baz is a pretty immersive filmmaker. Uh, you know, working on a Baz Luhrmann film is not so different from watching one. Uh, in in some ways, he he creates the world of the film we're making uh, all around him, and he really he loves to do research and a deep dive into the world that he's portraying on film and. So from a musical standpoint, um, all of Baz's films have have a lot more music created and assembled and recorded and put together than you ever see on the screen. All we ever see in the finished film is is sort of the tip of the iceberg. There's there's always a bunch of other options that are always sitting just below the surface. And so to answer your question, like how does that happen? It's it's sort of by it's by 
jumping into the ocean of, of music and musical references and musical influences that relate to Elvis Presley and doing it in a very genuine way. And also diving into the, there's a vast vault of material that's Elvis Presley's recordings. He recorded, uh, I think over 900 songs, um, which is like, you know, over the course wow. of a career, like that's, that's a, that's a lot of music. And for yeah. every, for every song, there's, you know, 20 outtakes and uh, there was mountains of material to, to dive into. Wow. So we, uh, what, what you see on the screen at the end is, and what we hear is the kind of, uh, a selection of choices that have been made along the way, uh, from, from often a much longer cut of the film that gets kind of compressed. And so you, you have to throw out a lot of good stuff. It's not, it's not like we, 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 we have a shortage of good stuff when you're making a movie about Elvis Presley. Um, oh. but, uh, I have to, I have to say, you know, with, with the Elvis film, it, that was a big music team and it's a big music team effort. And we have, uh, an executive music producer who's overseeing the recording and production of the music and he uh elliot wheeler was also the composer on the film and then we had another music producer in nashville dave cobb and we had two music editors working on the film there was a there's a big uh sort of big team of people all pulling in the same direction to to get all this stuff done mm. do you know when you're working on a, a film like this that it's going to be a, amazing? Does, that it's, does it feel at that moment in time like this is going to be a massive thing? No, it, it no. <laughs> and it surprises you. I'm not going to name names, but I've worked on some films <laughs> that, that I thought were pretty terrible. Not Baz's films, other films. <laughs> I, no, I'm no, I'm just, yeah. <laughs> I'm ge no, I'm genuinely, I'm genuinely proud of, of 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 Baz's films and the work I've done on them. But I've worked on other films uh, in my role as a studio executive, where you watch the film and you go, "It's just not very good, is it?" And that's <laughs> you, you know, you've sunk a lot of time. You you might have put like a year of your life into that and given up weekends with your family and everything else, and you go, "It's not very good." And then. And the audience loves it and it makes a ton of money. And then the inverse happens as well. Sometimes you you work on things and you think, oh, it's a work of genius. People people are going to flock to this. And people don't see it and don't like it. And that's a weird thing. You, you make something and you hand it over to the audience. And on the day that it's in, in the possession of the audience, it's not it's not yours anymore. And what you realize is you've been having your own private experience with the film. I worried a lot about Elvis. I was like, oh, just, I don't know, like, are people going to be interested in this? Does the film work? Is it good? Um, mm. you, you hope it's good because you, you put your heart into it. But, uh, yeah. you know, some, sometimes you, sometimes you, you're not sure. I mean, I guess collectively it was a, a lot riding on that. Um, you know, you can't get that wrong, can you? I mean, it would be a disaster if a film about Elvis was a was a flop. It would be. It would be. Uh, you can't get it wrong. I mean, you you well, well you, you could get it wrong. You could get it wrong. It would be terrible. It would be humiliating. Um, yeah. So I'm glad we didn't humiliate ourselves. The film the film's been very successful. Yeah, massively successful. I mean, my dad loves Elvis, and kind of I guess it was of a, of his time. Um, 
and he won't go see it because he just doesn't want to um, uh, taint his view of Elvis. He doesn't want to hear anything or see anything that isn't part of his vision of Elvis. And obviously, it's the story um, that I guess Baz decided to go with is, um, you know, how, how, did, how did that story come, come about and kind of that focusing on that specific aspect of it? Because in a way, it was phenomenal celebration of his life. Um, but also incredibly sad. I mean, I know a few people that I went with were crying at the end of the film. Um, I didn't expect that. Yeah, it's funny. I I, I sat down um, at a restaurant and there were a couple of couple of guys at the next table who who were saying, "Oh, you know, I just saw that Elvis film. Oh, yeah, I saw it last week." And they were all going, "It was pretty sad, wasn't it?" <laughs> um, well, look, how do you decide what story to tell? Is 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 a tricky one because mm. I would say with with Elvis's life, Elvis's life is is sort of pretty operatic. Like if you just if you look if you read the biographies um, of Elvis, you realize he he had like a really big life with yeah. big big ups and downs. And if you were going to do a true telling of Elvis's life, it would take forty two years to do that. Um, so you have to choose the bits that 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 point to or hint at a story that that gives you something to take away and think about afterwards. And I certainly think the focus on Elvis and his relationship with the Colonel is an interesting point of inquiry because uh, in different ways they you can you can both say that that the Colonel was using Elvis and that Elvis was using the Colonel and. Um, Probably in the end, neither of them win, and that's that's partly why it's a it's a sort of it's a it's an operatic tragedy of a story. Yeah, it really is, and it, I guess Elvis is one of the first kind of music artists that was commercialized and managed in the way that a lot of artists are today, of course, and and the globalization. He's one of the first artists to go totally global, and isn't he still the number one selling artist of all time? Yeah, um, I want to. I'm saying a qualified yes because he he is the he is like the highest selling artist of all time. Um, but some some of that it's funny because the just the record keeping on that isn't consistent over the years. So right um, to some degree, that's interesting. To it's it seems to be seems to be pretty well accepted and and everybody kind of agrees it's 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 Elvis you know the greatest selling artist of all time but uh it also I think it fits in nicely with with the mythology we have around Elvis and that we have around great performers like Elvis like um you know Michael Jackson's another one obviously who they're mythologized because everything about them is a superlative and they, it, it, it matches the mythology that Elvis holds the crown because we call him the king. Um, mm. And so, yes. Uh, but can it be verified scientifically at this very moment, uh, numerically? Um, that would be very difficult because the, the metrics for measuring sales uh, of records have changed so much over the years. And nowadays, the metric for measuring sales of records happens through aggregation of, of of streams so yeah it's it's we don't want to go down that whole rabbit hole 
that yeah, would be yeah, boring. Yeah, no. That would be boring no, for your audience. No. Yeah, it's it's incredible. I was, I was listening to some music yesterday and on Spotify, and um, there was one artist I won't say who it was, but he had his top his top single was listened by two billion had had something two and a half billion listens. I mean, that's just crazy, isn't it? Vince, I wouldn't I wouldn't have pegged you as a Harry Styles fan. <laughs> Sam, how'd you get that? <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. Um, but I was just amazed by that, you know, like, because it's interesting. We, had, we we caught up in L.A. a little while ago, um, last month, I think it was, when I was over there on the way to New York. And it was lovely to catch up with you and Nikki and have, have lunch together. And we were talking about the most songs are three minutes. And trying to, I was kind of wondering, why is that? Is it because of, you know, pressing an LP or, 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 or a record? Did you Did you look into that? You said you were going to look into that. I don't know if you did or not. I looked into it, but I couldn't. You know what? I we might need to call in a call in a sort of <laughs> hi, historical musicologist because this is this is this is where my deductive reasoning led. Most most songs come either from a church tradition or a folk tradition, and mm. for that reason. It's helpful, particularly if you go back 500 years when people couldn't read uh, as in a, mm. as widespread a way. It sort of stands to reason that that songs have this verse-chorus structure, and that you can remember so many verses and choruses. Now there are some ballads which just go on forever, like it's just like verse after verse after verse after verse. But yeah. I think if you're looking at the the church and folk tradition uh, and the idea that a lot of folk songs were for dancing to, um, I, I, I guess that sort of means that there's a sort of two and a half to five minute vibe about, mm. a, about the right length for a song. Um, the technology of song reproduction um, is, I don't think is, is the reason why a song tended to be like three and a half minutes long when for radio from the sort of 60s uh 70s 80s 90s uh they they used to say that three minutes 33 was the perfect length for a song which also happens to fit neatly on one side of a 45 record yeah this uh, the the modern the modern phonograph records come out of an earlier technology which is the edison wax cylinder but they invented it and they didn't know what to do with it. They they were like, "It's cool, isn't it?" But they didn't they didn't immediately use it for recording music. They re used it for recording stories, and people would mm. would sit down and and do a story. And the wax cylinder played for I think nine or ten minutes, um, and then eventually somebody put it onto a flat record. That doesn't answer the question, though. It's 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 more like I think you can start to see where the patterns are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's really cool. I mean, music plays such an important part in our lives as human beings. Music is vital, I think, and makes or breaks my life. It's like it, and it also certain songs during certain parts of times in your life uh, are profound and and can help you through tough times and and help you celebrate good times and and etc so what's your favorite music look if you'd asked me like a year ago you're gonna say Elvis, ago, aren't you? no no i was 
Uh, no, I've listened to a lot of Elvis now. I think I, I think he and I are going to have a little break for a while. Um, <laughs> look, if you'd asked me one or two years ago, I think in an effort to look younger and cooler than I am, I, I would have been like saying, oh, you know, Tame Impala is really like my favorite artist. But I can't, I, I can't say that because I feel like now that my relationship to music, it's just a more mature relationship. So the stuff I like to listen to at home is, I like to listen to old, older records that had a big effect on me when I was younger. So I find myself going back to Bob Dylan and The Clash mm. and The Beatles yeah. and Talking Heads and the yeah. the music that kind of that that awoke my my interest and love of music was probably the music I was listening to when I was an adolescent. And in some ways, it's it's not that I, you know, haven't developed in my listening beyond that. It's just that they become like old friends. So to me, to, mm. to go home and put on Bob Dylan's blood on the tracks, I just go like, that's just like, that's like being in the company of an old friend and feeling some sort of warm connection to an earlier version of myself. Um, which sounds a bit self-centered. I don't mean it to. It's just, yeah, yeah. it's, you look for, I think you, it's one of the things you look for in music is, is for it to, um, to comfort or inspire you. And it's great. It's great to have those old records that you, that you loved then and you love now. Yeah. It's, it's, um, a similar kind of the, the music you just mentioned is very much my, my taste as well. And that's, I guess, through, Growing up in Canada, my my dad played that music, um, you know, the Beatles and the albums, the vinyl, you know, and and in the order that they were laid out on the album too. So when I when I now listen to Spotify and you play, you know, a Beatles album and you play and it's and it's kind of shuffle, it kind of freaks me out because I used to, I knew every single song in the order, I knew the gap between the songs, and that was so important. I don't know, we've we've we're, we've lost that now. I don't know if that was. It's a better thing because of that. I don't know. What do you think about that? That kind of the shuffle, kind of random, endless opportunities of music now that we have. Yeah, I. So I mean, I use Spotify like all day long in my professional life, and I love the convenience of being able to build playlists, and I love the convenience of shuffling music. But I'm with you. Like when I when I listen to. Um, a record I really know, not only do I know the order, but exactly as you say, like I know exactly how long the gap is between each song. And that be that's part of your experience of it. It's like, uh, it's just like you're going on a walk with that record. Um, even if you're sitting on the yeah. couch, you, you're, you're communing with it. And yeah, I, something to me is lost in this era where people aren't listening to albums, but I also have faith. I think it. I, I think it. I think that's just a cycle, and some somebody sooner or later is going to make you know the great album of the twenty twenties, and then people will follow that, and other people will make great albums. And it's but it's at the moment it's a slightly lost format. You think about Dark Side of the Moon. Um, if you put that on shuffle, it would make no sense. Um, and that that music just. It sounds great because you're forced to listen to 42 or 45 minutes of music 
in a sitting that all relates one song relates to the next and and it's got a flow to it so yeah i i'm a fan you must you must have met some incredible uh musicians and artists in your career today who who have you met over the years uh look i mean i think the the people who have made the biggest impression on me are the ones because this it, otherwise it just becomes like well you know who haven't i met uh i think uh the people who made the biggest impression on me are the ones who every so often you work with a musician and you go ah oh, man they've been they've been touched by 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 the, the 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 music gods or the music spirit is speaking through them um we did a we did a film score and Herbie Hancock came in and played piano on it oh, wow. um a few wow. years ago and that was one of those moments where you just and Herbie Hancock who uh, I I mean I think he was like 80 or 82 you know he, he was not he was not young but he came in and played so beautifully and you go oh he's at a level of virtuosity that is far and above uh everybody else and mm. um there's there's a there's a guitarist who plays all of the big hollywood sessions here in la named george deering and when i worked at fox i would go down to the scoring stage in the hope of hearing him play because he's just this incredible player and wow another person uh who i've worked with on several films is the composer craig armstrong and he's another one who considered a piano and just to him he's just noodling like he's just he's 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 just finding notes that sound pleasing to him in the moment but uh if you happen to be in the room you know you can suddenly find yourself you know with tears running down your cheeks and so even though you know well i guess herbie hancock's a household name but but you know most of the most of the great players uh that you that we get to work with in the film music business are not as well known to the rest of the world but they they are the, the they are a voice in the the music that that we all relate to when we watch a movie. Mm. And you worked with Jay Z on The Great Gatsby. Yeah, uh, we did, and uh, he helped us. We went to him and and asked him to to, I guess, take on the idea that that we could translate. Um, jazz of the 1920s into into hip-hop and in a very in a very baz way you know find find a kind of translation between um sort of the edgy black street music of the 1920s and the edgy black street music of of today although probably i guess we made gatsby in 2013 hip-hop had probably was no longer quite such an edgy black street music but nonetheless um there is a parallel there and um jay-z was sort of our our translator in chief and um and and also i mean he helped he probably helped us in ways that that we didn't even see because we would play ideas to him and he'd say you can't have that song you can't that you're not using that uh I know, I know what you're trying to do, but 
uh, here, let me show you, let me show you the right way to do this. And he, wow. he was really good. He was really good at that. And, uh, because he's sort of, he's the chairman of the board. I mean, he's like, uh, he, he is in many ways the kind of the presiding, uh, you know, sort of, uh, I guess he's, he's the boss of that world in some ways. He, he, he was really helpful to us in, connecting with artists we wanted to work with and and setting the sound for that film. Mm, that's really cool. And then what your new role, Head of Music for Amazon Original Films, what does that entail? So uh, Amazon Originals, uh, uh, the films produced by Amazon Studios uh, in, in the US and around the world, um, they are original films that go out on the Prime Video service. Um, anybody who has a uh, Amazon Prime membership uh, also has access to Prime Video. But you know, in in simple speak, um, I'm the head of a music department, and our job is to oversee every aspect of the music on all of the films we produce. And uh, like like Netflix and like Apple and um, other streaming platforms, we we are in a period of huge expansion to um, mm. create our own content and to create films um, and, you know, I should say quality films uh, and, and series. Um, I don't oversee series, I just oversee the films and I've got a team here and we hire composers, we hire music supervisors, we license music. We make sure that that uh, the filmmakers uh, are getting what they need uh, musically, and and that they're also getting kind of experience and guidance on how to go about uh, populating their their films with with the right kind of music to tell the story that they want to tell. Wow, do you think you could have done that role if you hadn't have done the films with Baz? I mean, there's obviously a natural progression now you look at it. I mean. I'm grateful. Uh, I'm grateful for having done those films with Baz because the, the, each one of them was such a, a heavy lift on music. And so mm. now, now that I'm in a slightly different role where I'm supervising a team or I'm talking to music supervisors on the on the projects, uh, I guess I've had a lot of miles on the road doing Baz's films uh, and doing the films I oversaw when I was at at Fox. Um, but what I'm enjoying a bit more now is actually working with, uh, I don't know how to put this without, because uh, it's going to sound a bit goofy, but, you know, I think I spent so much of my professional life feeling like I was, I was sort of the young guy, you know, and still learning and still on my way up. And then there does come a point where you kind of go, oh, actually, I, I know a lot of this stuff now. And, mm. and it's probably on me to, to share some of that experience and share some of that knowledge, uh, both with the, the team that, that, that I work with here and, and with uh, younger up and coming composers and with younger music supervisors and, and share a little bit of that um, experience. But I, I'm trying to say, say it in a way that doesn't sound like crazy arrogant because yeah, yeah uh, you're not that you know there's <laughs> there's a sort of there's a side to that where i think people people do go around and and say you know you got to listen to me because i know what i'm talking about 
I am still, I'm still learning and I still feel curious about, um, new ways of doing things. But I'm, I'm also, uh, particularly with music heavy projects, um, I find that, that I've, I've, I've got a few things I can share and, and hopefully be useful to, to filmmakers. Yeah, amazing, amazing to go from painting and fixing up, you know, the studio to, <laughs> to now doing the role that you're in now. And, you know, you are a young guy. I mean, you look incredibly fit. Um, how do you keep well? Because obviously, I'm sure working on films and in this industry takes a lot out of you. It can be pretty t consuming, all-consuming. Um, how do you manage to stay healthy? Well, you know that in Los Angeles, everybody's, everybody's health-obsessed. Um, or at the very least, it's a pretty clean living town. But... Um, no, I, I, I do a lot of cycling with Nikki. We get out on our bikes, uh, most weekends and, and ride many, many miles. We just went up to Santa Barbara and did a hundred kilometer, uh, road race up there. So we're, you know, we're pretty into the cycling. And once you get into a sport mm. like that, you know, you yeah. just, you realize it's, it's better to keep yourself in, in, in okay condition. Because uh, when you slack off too much and you come back to it after a month, if you haven't ridden for a month, it just feels terrible. So we're 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 definitely out on our bikes a couple of times a week. And what about how does that make you feel when you don't do your exercise in terms of your your the stress levels or you know your workload, etc.? Uh, it's it I I get a really noticeable difference, and I I find them. Well, I find I'm much better equipped to deal with um, the, the stress of work um, if I'm if I'm maintaining an ex exercise regime. And mm. when we were doing um, when we were doing Elvis, I couldn't exercise because uh, it was so. We were in Queensland, and then when we were in Sydney, and it's been so wet in Australia, it just mm. rained and rained and rained, and I couldn't get out on my bike. And I found. Um, I found it really compounded the the sort of just the mental well-being part of 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 the equation started to slide because um I think think there's something to be said for maintaining a balance between your physical fitness and and the corresponding benefit you get in sort of just having a clearer head. Absolutely. I find that with strength training recently training 4 days a week, you know, just 1 hour of time. I mean, it's only like four hours out of your whole week, but it makes a massive difference to how I cope with life generally. Yeah. Uh, as a result of that, do you find Vince that co the sort of there's a feeling of camaraderie and that that is part of part of the the benefit for you? It, it actually is because it's about um, I do kettlebell training down in Bondi with a bunch of guys. About twenty guys turn up. I mean, sometimes three come, sometimes twenty, but it's just. Like no one's saying anything spe specifically, but they're just there to do the training. But they're kind of coming together, do the thing, and go. But there is there is the conversation and knowing that you know we're all in life making, trying to make our way, and knowing that it's important for us to do that bit, that little bit each week. Um, it just feels nice to feel like there's a lot of like-minded people that are going through similar things in life, you know, ups and downs and stuff like that. And sometimes they share that. But I re I really like that. I just like that kind of shifting it from just being more human, I guess, you know? Yeah, I, I get that too. I 
Nikki and I trained for a, for a marathon over the summer, and and one of the one of the great things was was actually just feeling that um, you know you're going you're going you're going through this physical stuff, but that there's a continuity with the other people around you, and that you you know some days other people need a bit of encouragement, and sometimes mm. you're the one who needs a bit of encouragement. Yeah, and, yeah. And as you say, it's not like it doesn't have to be a lot, but sometimes it's just a look or a you know somebody pats you on the shoulder and you go, ah, oh, that's right, I'm uh, I'm not yeah. I, I'm not I'm not doing this alone. But that's it's it's not specific just to the training. It's it's good to feel that way in your life. Yeah, no, you you're absolutely right. And um, so we have this WhatsApp group with our kettlebell guys, and and I was just like thanking the guys the other day, just saying, hey, thank you for support because. Actually, if they hadn't, kind of what you were saying, sometimes they call me up and say, hey, Vince, I just know you're a bit quiet the other day. Are you okay? I'm going, yeah, yeah. yeah. Thanks for asking because I'm actually not okay, um, blah, blah, blah. Or, you know, just knowing that those guys are there and being supportive. Actually, I said to them the other day that I would have given up, you know, three months in. <laughs> I would have definitely would have gone, I can't do this. It's, I would have found another excuse not to go. I would, I would, have, I would have been raining. I mean, uh, work would get in the way or whatever. But this time, I think it is the the support from the group that makes it actually uh, much more doable for me and much more important that it's actually thinking that it's training for life versus training for a specific goal. So I'm thinking long-term. I'm thinking about relationships. I'm thinking about commitment. I'm thinking about... Um, just kind of in a way doing, I guess, the least what I need to do to be fittish in my life, you know? Yeah, I really hear that. It's, I mean, it's a great thing to discover too. Like, I, I didn't exercise at all until, uh, well, until my 40s, um, you know, and discovering it sort of in 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 middle adulthood uh, has been has been like a light going on. I wish I wish I'd gotten onto it sooner. I was just just spent too many years working too hard or not not yeah. putting any focus on it. And then at a certain point you realize, well, like your body needs a bit of maintenance. But then it comes with this great side effect, which is community and um, and just it's good 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 for your spirit. Yeah, no, it really is. It's really good. Especially if you find the thing that you love doing too. Um, well, look, it's been so cool to catch up with you, Anton. Um, we could have talked to ages uh, about music. Um, so where, where can people go to listen to what you love to listen to? Uh, I, well, they, they can go and they can, they can look me up, look up my profile on Spotify. And uh, I, have, I have a bunch of public, public playlists on there that I really just put up. For, I put them up for myself. It's not, it's not really for other people but then from time to time i just i will share share these playlists with other people because i get asked this question which is like what do you listen to now the stuff on those playlists you if you just go fishing around in there you'll see some of them are sort of themed playlists i I had this idea of a playlist which was i was like what about a playlist that's kind of earthy and feels feels like getting feels like you feel when you put on an old pair of jeans and i i stole a line from a from the Rolling Stones song Dead Flowers and called it Ragged Company. Have a look at that. That's mm. the kind of like okay. I, I, 
is there's no real purpose to this playlist other than it's the stuff I like to listen to when I'm at home or riding my bike, that sort of stuff. But um, yeah, other yeah. than that, I, I'm a bit of a bower bird when it comes to looking for music. I, I go and I, I check out the public playlists of all the artists I like and I, I learn stuff and I listen to the BBC uh, radio music shows endlessly and that's a great place to, to pick up new music. Guy Garvey has a great show on BBC Six. That's that's a that's a weekly must for me. You know, there's good stuff out there. If you just you got to go out and sort of fish around for it. Yeah, absolutely. And if anyone wants to listen to our Design Your Life uh, playlist too, that's on Spotify, which is about nine hours worth of music. Keep adding to that. Um, and uh, have you designed your life? I, I want to say yes because it sounds purposeful and aligned with <laughs> with with you, Vincent, with your podcast. Uh, but no, I don't, no, don't I, do that. I don't know that I, I don't know that I have designed my life. I've I've tried to make good decisions and good choices. Sometimes I've made them a little late, um, and I I probably feel like there there were things uh, along the way I could have done a lot better. But um, I don't know. I, I if 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 designing comes down to making decisions uh i'm still trying to make good decisions um so i suppose to some degree i am but i i, I don't think my life has followed uh, a, a pattern or a design that that i had early on apart from mm. apart from being a teenager and, and loving american culture and dreaming mm. that one day i would live in america that's 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 been an, a an odd thing, you know. If I could have, if I could talk to my fifteen-year-old self, I think uh, my fifteen-year-old self would be surprised to learn that I that I made it to America. Wow, that's really cool. Well, it, it probably was by design. Then, if that's something you dreamt about that you wanted to happen early on, I did. I did dream about it. I, I didn't. I just didn't think the doors would open in the right way to to make that happen. I know it's an unpopular position, by the way. I know America, you know, cops a lot of flack, deservedly, but <laughs> but there is but there, there's a lot of great there's a lot of great stuff about this place that I really love. Yeah, it's an amazing country. Um, I really love LA too. Such a a lot of people say they don't like it, but I think it's an amazing city. Yeah, me too. It must be cool to live there. It's cool. Yeah, LA is good. California is amazing. California as a state has has everything, and I love it. Yeah, good, good. So we're not moving back to Sydney then. Uh, maybe if it stops raining, tell me. <laughs> <laughs> Anton, it's been really cool to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much, my friend. Thank you, Vince. It's been a pleasure. I love the Nikki and the kids, and uh, we'll see you very soon. Yeah, you bet. That'd be great. Good to see you. Thanks, right, Vince. Man. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode of Design Your Life with Anton Monster. Tune in to the next episode where I'll be catching up with our very own Cat Burgess, head of place here at Frost Collective. Thanks for listening to this episode of Design Your Life. If you'd like to find out more about how you can design your life, head to the website at designyourlife.com.au. 
If you found this episode inspiring, please don't forget to review and subscribe. If you have any ideas or like to get in touch, we would love to hear from you. Send us an email at hello at frostcollective.com.au.